Do PBMs have an inherent conflict of interest when dealing with plans? And who's educating physicians about pharmacy cost, choices, and efficacy? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of Shift Shapers is brought to you by Benazon Healthcare Advocacy. Your clients and their employees expect more service, more responsiveness, and more help than ever before. You need to focus on building your book. How do you do both? Benazon. To learn more, go to benazon.com or click the Benazon logo at the top of the shiftshapersonline.com page. I can't imagine that there's anyone listening who does not believe that pharmacy spend is out of control. I remember just a few years ago, we were talking about it being 13 or 14% of overall spend, and people were aghast. And today, it's pushing 25, and in some places, it's even more. Now, some of that is for good reasons. Some of that is for not so good reasons. But we thought it was a topic worth diving into and investigating in a little bit more detail. And so we've asked Renzo Luzzatti. Renzo is president of USRX Care. They craft a lot of innovative cost-sharing strategies, and that's great. But what's more important for us today is that he's spent many years from a variety of vantage points looking at this problem and trying to figure out what makes the watch tick. So with that, welcome, Renzo. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. We're pleased to have you here, and thanks for sharing your expertise with our audience. So let's start at the very, very beginning. What the heck is driving pharma costs? Well, as you know, it is a rapidly rising cost for health plans as well as self-insured employers that, that pay the bills. Most recently in the last few years, specialty pharmaceuticals have been truly a frightening trend in terms of the cost of these drugs that are coming out as well as the pace of new approvals for those drugs. So specialty is definitely the new train wreck. But there's also a lot going on on the the non-specialty, the traditional maintenance meds. In part, great increases in the cost of generics. You may have seen this in the news. You know, manufacturers that, that used to sell a product for $10, uh, now the same product is $500. It's almost like the generics are the new brands. It's It's harder to come up with new innovations. A lot of the the maintenance categories, you know, they've got 16, 17 drugs in the category and and manufacturers are looking at other areas. So we have seen dramatic increases in cost in traditional areas, even in in terms of generics. So plant sponsors are, are exposed from all sides and it's not getting, it's not getting any better. So when let's, let's define, when you talk about specialty pharmaceuticals, two questions, Give us an example of what a specialty pharmaceutical might be. And you also mentioned something that was curious. I had not heard this before, that they're being approved at a more rapid rate. So the second part of the question is, once we define what they are, to what do you attribute that? So especially pharmaceuticals, there's no official definition in the marketplace. Every pharmacy benefit manager comes up with their own list. But in general, these are drugs that are often administered via injection, they're expensive. They require some some complex regimen or monitoring. Biologics 
would be included in this this category. It's not only injectables. There are, are many expensive drugs that are considered specialty that come out in, in oral form. But cost certainly is one of the factors that drives the, the, the categorization of specialty as opposed to the, you know, the 50 cent pill that you would get at the local pharmacy. The other thing is that specialty drugs are typically dispensed by a specialty pharmacy. These are pharmacies that are experienced with these drugs, knowledgeable of the conditions, and, and can, can provide some additional education and resources to, to the members that are taking those drugs. But these aren't esoteric drugs. These are drugs that, like Embrol and those things that we see advertised on TV, right? Sure. Oh, yeah. Many of them are advertised. Even uh, hepatitis C, you'll see the advertisements, I'm ready, you know, for, for treatment, recommending that everyone get tested. So the manufacturers are doing their part to educate the, the consumer to the availability of these drugs. And that certainly does impact the marketplace. And, and, and patients do go, individuals do go in and, and ask their doctors about these drugs. In terms of the pace, why special? Specialty, I think it really is is driven by two things. First of all, dollars. Especially drugs do carry a higher dollar value. I can't comment on specifically the manufacturer margins, but I think it's safe to say that the margins are healthy in specialty pharmacy. So that is certainly an attractive place to spend R&D money versus coming out with the next generation cholesterol pill, if you will, the replacement for Lipitor. We know that the number of specialty medications has grown from about 15 in the mid-90s to over 300, and specialty drugs are, are expected to account for over 50% of spend in just the, the next few years. So it's a significant and daunting impact on those that are plan sponsors, those who are at risk for pharmacy dollars. And, and you know that's where we've been spending our time and attention to help both health plans and employers get a, get a hold of that cost. So we talk about the players and you mentioned PBMs. I think everybody knows what a PBM is, or at least we all have our own definitions. What are PBMs actually doing and what should their role really be? Yeah, that's a good question. So the role has has evolved over the years. I mean, PBMs really started as group purchasing organizations, right? Bringing lives together to have leverage against the manufacturers in terms of of pricing and also leverage against the pharmacies in terms of the 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 prices that pharmacy charge. And in general, I, I would say that they've satisfied that goal pretty well. Over the years, they've also gotten into the provider side of the equation, and I think that in part is where some of the disconnects and conflicts of interest that folks are concerned about have come in. They're dispensing. You know, most of the, the, the large PBMs and even some of the smaller ones have their own specialty pharmacy, right? So they are actually dispensing the medications. They get considerable amounts of dollars from manufacturers, and a lot of that is is kept at the at the level of the PBM. And so it does beg the question and, and employers and health plans are, are asking the right question, how does that impact the overall utilization? Is the PBM truly a gatekeeper, a fiduciary? I'm looking out for my best interests. There's some, some good debate as to whether or not that fiduciary level of oversight is in fact taking taking place. Most PBMs, uh, maybe all PBMs, do not sign anything that says that they're acting as a fiduciary on behalf of the client. Even though that's 
kind of what they're doing. It's kind of in a thought. I think clients think that that's what they're that that's what the function is, but that's not that is not the the function. And and those conflicts are are meaningful. And, and clients should be asking their PBM about those conflicts and how that might be impacting their overall spend. So, what would be the appropriate role of a PBM? Well, we come at this from a different philosophy, and, and that is that where true cost savings is going to be derived for plan sponsors is at least going forward is less on the discounts at the pharmacy and the rebates coming from the manufacturer, which have really been the two goalposts of the, the metrics that have been used in the past. You know, what is my discount off AWP, average wholesale price, and what's my rebate from the manufacturer? And and the purchasing decision from payers has has in large part been based on who puts forth the best discount in in retail pharmacy and and who is giving us the higher highest rebates time has pretty much shown that if that's all you look at and that's the basis upon which you make your purchasing decision as far as who is going to be your PBM that you're not truly addressing costs as a matter of fact there's a lot of publications and a lot of things in the press that would would say that, in fact, if those are the only metrics that you're using to measure the value of your PBM, that, that in the past, costs have actually increased faster looking at just those two metrics than looking at what we do is is on the clinical side. We firmly believe that the cost savings, you know, if you want to cut your cost by 10%, 20%, 30%, it's not going to, you're not going to get that by eking out an additional quarter percent or half a percent in discounts off of a network pharmacy quote. You're not going to get that from getting rebates. Rebates, if you think about it, those are, are another form of discount from the manufacturer. And when you're getting a rebate, they're only rebating on expensive drugs. So you have to pay for the expensive drug in order to get a rebate. And in today's marketplace, there are lots of options in, in many, many therapeutic categories other than that expensive brand that carries a rebate. So ultimately, looking beyond just the cost of the medication measured in terms of discount off AWP and rebate, but what is appropriate utilization? What are the drugs that are being promoted? What are the drugs that are being prescribed? Are there alternatives that cost less, not only for the plan, but also for the member? And when you get into that and look at what's being prescribed and focus on the clinical and optimizing the use of lower cost alternatives when they are available, and sometimes it's just a matter of reminding the doctor that 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 good old drug that sold billions of dollars when it was brand still works even though it's it's now generic. So those are the things that we see as being the important elements to focus on going forward to truly bend the cost curve. And that goes for specialty as well as non-specialty. It's even more critical in specialty that you have a team of experts that are looking at what was prescribed, make sure it's consistent with the treatment guidelines, and make sure that if there are are steps that need to be taken, lower cost options, tried and true options that, that should be tried before you bring out the big gun, that that occurs. And from what we've seen and what others have have seen and, and commented and observed, that's not happening 
at a level that that we think is is consistent with fiduciary level oversight when it comes to what we're seeing in a lot of the the PBM industry. And now a word from our sponsor. Today you're being pulled in multiple directions. Employers want you to deliver a higher level of service and employee satisfaction, and you want more time to grow your business. How do you do both? Benazon Healthcare Advocacy is the answer. Benazon helps plan members understand, utilize, and maximize their health plan and answers their benefits questions while you improve productivity, increase client retention, and grow your book. The best part about partnering with Benazon is that your agency gets all the credit. Clients see your logo, while the Benazon team of subject matter experts work to ensure resolution to specific member information and service requests. Each agency gets a dedicated telephone number and year-round, 24-7 customer support that answers the phone with your agency name. Turn your benefit on with Benazon. For more information, go to www.benazon.com or click their logo on the Shift Shapers website. Benazon. Healthcare as it should be. Now, back to our interview. So that brings up a couple of questions, and it's a really great point. The first is when, when a patient is prescribed drug X by their physician and all of a sudden they're being told, well, we think you should try drug Y instead, it creates a lot of anxiety and a lot of those darned insurance companies or that damn plan. They're just out to, to, to get me to use something less expensive. So the two questions that I come up both have a common thread, I think, which is education. Who's educating the physicians and where does that happen in the process? And who's educating patients? Right. Critical. And again, that's an area that we've spent a lot of time and energy focusing on what's the best way to do that, right? And those that approach that at some depth, which means that you're spending more time and energy, right? I mean, in, in, in an ideal world, all of this would, would happen electronically. The patient goes to the pharmacy. There's a message there. The doctor has access to all the information in their office. They can make the, these decisions before they prescribe. That's just not reality. So in order to make a dent, you have to spend a lot more time with the physician and with the member educating. The other thing that, that we've found to be important, and that is it's not enough just to ask the doctor to write less of a particular drug. You know, you're, you're writing too much of this drug, start writing a different one. As soon as you've delivered that message and they're on to the next patient, they forgot about it. So communications that are patient-specific, drug-specific, identifying what the alternatives are and what the doses are, we believe is important in terms of assisting the physician to be a better prescriber. And frankly, they appreciate that because it's less work for them, right? You're not asking them just to write less for who, well, for what patient, you know? That patient comes in a week from now, they forgot about that. So communicating at that level of detail and presenting the options at that level of detail, individual patient, dose level, specific alternatives, therapeutic equivalent, that's important. On terms of the member side of the equation, those conversations can can and should be positive. If the doctor has agreed to allow the member to try a, a lower cost alternative, for example, just use that as as a as a as a case, and that lower cost alternative carries a lower ca- copay for the member, 
which should be the case if you've done your homework, then when you're, when you're calling the member and educating them on the, the, the opportunity to make a change, in general, and there's always exceptions, but in general they're appreciative that somebody took the time to reach out to their doctor to find out what the options are and get an approved alternative from the doctor and then educate them on that. And at the end of the day, the member saves money, right? Most of the time when presented with those options, individuals will say, heck yeah, you know, I'm, I'll try that. I mean, my doctor's already approved it. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, folks will say, why didn't somebody tell me this last year? Well, you know, we're happy to let you know now, and off we go. So in general, you're right. It comes down to communication, and it does take more effort. It takes more outreach to the doctor and the member coordinating with the pharmacies to make sure that those prescriptions get there. But at the end of the day, it's worth the trip in our experience. Mechanically, I, I can understand on the on the patient side, on the member side, the benefit advisor, the plan itself can reach out to those folks and make them aware. Mechanically, where does the educating the physician piece fit in the workflow of a plan? And and who does it? So I think it really depends on the environment, the office, what they're used to. And there's a lot of, of technologies that we're excited about that are coming into the marketplace, maybe not quite ready for the, the masses, but you know, fax is still it still works for most offices. Sounds antiquated, but that's just reality. So fax is still king. I think anybody that's trying to reach out to a doctor to effect a change would say that fax is still king. Phone would be number two. If doctors would accept emails, that would be great, but that's not an option. They don't like to hear from the plan via email. But fax is typically the the approach, both in terms of, of reaching out to the prescriber and also getting responses back. The the technologies that are that are advancing would allow a communication, for example, directly into an electronic medical record system. That's the holy grail, right? Everyone's shooting for that. And there's some good work being done in that. Some of the challenges are that there's a lot of those systems out there. And integrating with all those systems is is complicated and requires a cooperation. So we're keeping our eye on that. The bandwidth in terms of access to doctor's offices needs to increase, but also the cost to deliver that message through that avenue needs to come down. It's still cost prohibitive at the end of the day to do en masse, at least from our, our perspective. So fax still works. We get the responses back quickly, and it seems to still be an important component of the, the workflow in a doctor's office. So we've got about a minute left, and one of the questions that we frequently like to ask our guests is, is kind of your vision of what do you see the future? Where do you see this intersection of ever-increasing spend on drugs that are very worthwhile but are incredibly expensive and the ability to help divert physician prescriptions to other drugs that might be equally effective. I mean, where do you see this all going? How how high is up until we get a handle on this? Yeah. So I think switching the the therapeutic alternatives is is kind of basic blocking and tackling. Any organization is going to want to see that 
from their PBM or, frankly, an independent third party separate from the PBM, we think is a better way to go where you, you're outside of any conflicts, you're just going pure clinical. But for the next few years where the focus is going to need to be is on specialty. And what, what we're seeing out there and what we're looking at is moving the prior authorization process out of the PBM so that you've got an independent third party that is in looking at rebate dollars, they're not looking at cost of dispensing, that's doing a pure clinical review to make sure that the right drug is being prescribed, it meets the guidelines, and it's being dispensed in appropriate quantities. That's where the real difference is going to come in, we believe, and where plans are going to see market savings, those that, that take that approach. Renzo Luzzatti, president of USRX Care. Renzo, again, thanks for a fascinating discussion. I know there's a lot more to, to chat about on this subject. We hope you'll come back and visit with us again. Thank you very much. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of the Saltzman Group. We work with entrepreneurs, executives, and companies just like you to help shape the shifts in your business. To schedule a 20-minute call to learn more, visit our website at thesaltzmangroup.com or call me directly at 803-386-8005. I'd love to hear from you. And while you're on our site, you can also click the podcast tab for the entire catalog of Shift Shapers episodes and to access some really great special offers. Give me a call at 803-386-8005 and learn how to put the secrets of the Shift Shapers to work in your business.